The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thrilled to death to have you with us for the show today, listeners, because we have a guest that has blown my mind. And you know that I love all of my guests to come on Go Green Radio, but today's guest has done something really special. Linda Marsa has just released her new book called Fevered, and she's done something that I haven't seen before, and you know that I've seen a lot. She has written a book about climate change and how it will impact human health and survivability, and she's made it so real and so interesting. It's truly a human interest story, and I could not put it down. And I have read, I can't even count how many books I've read about climate change and the human health impacts of climate change, but from the first page of Fevered, I was captivated, and I could not put it down. Um, so I'm really excited to have Linda on the show. She is an investigative journalist. She's a contributing editor at Discover Magazine, which I love. Um, she's a former LA Times reporter and author, and, and I'm just excited as I'll get out to have you on the show, Linda. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Well, uh, thank you, Jill, for having me on, and I'm really thrilled that you like the book. Um, my goal was to make climate change real to people, and I'm really happy that you've read the book and you feel that way because, I, you know, the whole idea of climate change, it's this kind of scientific concept, and, you know, we're sort of out here, well, so it's getting warmer, so what? You know, the climate varies, you know, the temperature varies 10 degrees from the summer, the winter, you know, big deal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like you, I, you know, when I first started writing the book, I was interviewing a lot of experts, and then about halfway through the research, I thought, this isn't really how I want to tell the story. And I started drilling down, and I found out that climate change is already affecting people here in the United States in a very deep and profound way. Well, and the way that you tell the story um, makes it so uh, I, all of my senses were engaged um and so many of the books that i've read are are terrific they're you know scientific they're you know very informative yours was all of that and so much more i'd love for you to explain just before we get into some of the main topics of the book and some of the things that you covered i'd like for you to kind of help our listeners understand the scope of your research who to whom did you speak uh where did you go give us some idea of the scope of the research that you did for the book well i you know, I always tell people, you know, I think journalists sort of fall into two general categories. There's the sort of the stylistic journalists who, you know, are just beautiful writers and they write these wonderful stories. And then there's the research grunts. I'm a research <laughs> grunt. I love to do research. I love to get out on the road. I love to talk to people, love to report. So I was really all over the place. Uh, you know, I talked to, you know, the usual suspects, all the leading climate scientists. 
But the other thing that I did is that I really tried to drill down and go to the places where they're really already starting to feel the effects of warmer weather. Uh, I went to California Central Valley, which has terrible air, which is just going to get worse as the temperature heats up. Um, you know, I live here in Los Angeles, same thing. Um, droughts, you know, we're looking at droughts here in Los Angeles and sort of the southwestern United States. Uh, I went to New Orleans because one of the aspects of climate change uh, is that we're going to start having what they euphemistically call extreme weather events. I always love that kind of, you know, parlance, you know, where they're sort of couching these catastrophic things in these, you know, sort of innocuous language. But, Mm -hmm. you know, hurricanes, floods, you know, things like that. And, you know, we know that it was pretty terrible what happened after Hurricane Katrina, you know, and there was, you know, the, the whole city was sort of flattened. But what I wanted to unpack was what happens to the public health system a year out, two years out, three years out, because, you know, we sort of had this idea that everything is very resilient and everybody sort of bounced back and six months later everything is just sort of groovy and everything. Mm-hmm. Ba- and that's not the case. So I went to New Orleans. Um, one of the places that I went to and I spent almost a month down there was Australia. And for a variety of reasons that I, I don't know how much you want me to get into it, but, you know, they're on the front lines of climate change. You know, very simply... They're surrounded by three oceans, the, um, the Southern Ocean, uh, the, the Pacific Ocean, and the Atlantic Ocean. So they're sort of, you know, at the mercy of the different currents of those oceans, which are changing due to climate change. And then the other piece of it is that, you know, Australia is about the same size as the United States, but it's kind of a big, flat desert island mm-hmm. with sort of the edges of the continent are sort of inhabitable. So the upshot is that they are, you know, that's sort of the short Reader's Digest condensed version of why they're on the front lines of climate change. And what I wanted to do was look at what climate change looks like in an advanced industrialized democracy. Because, you know, it's very easy to to dismiss flooding in Bangladesh or malaria outbreaks in Kenya and places like that and say, well, they don't have the infrastructure to combat this. And here in the United States, it's going to be different. Well, I looked at a place that's kind of like the United States, and it's mm-hmm. not going to be different. I mean, well, one of the anyway. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I've I've read quite a bit about the droughts that are impacting not just the crop land areas of Australia, although you know there's not a lot of that, but uh, even just the urban environments, Perth in particular, uh, just incredibly impacted by the dryness that you know they believe is associated with climate change and that's something that i i definitely want to get into let's talk about some of the uh the whys and the wherefores of climate change first of all based on the research that you did how do we know that the planet is warming i mean believe it or not (laughs) linda though you and i have you know seen all of the research there are some folks who still don't believe that the planet is warming so how do we know that's true and how do we know that it's due to the release of of carbon dioxide and not just normal climate variation. It would have happened anyway. Um, what does your research show? Well, I, I, I want to just step back one second because I, there, I think it's really sort of, and I'm not accusing you of this either, I think it's just sort of this myth that's been perpetuated. But they did a recent survey, and only 8% of the population here in the United States doesn't think climate change is happening. You know, everybody else sort of falls into either, you know, is very aware, 
knows it's desperate or, you know, thinks it's happening but not sure that there's anything we can do about it, you know, sort of going through that continuum. So that's the first thing. The problem is with that, Linda, is that that 8% tends to hold up a lot of public policy yes. that that could be advancing the uh, the yes, country towards true. a climate smart solution. And that's I think that's the biggest issue. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, you know, just sort of to quickly run through this, um, carbon dioxide is considered a greenhouse gas because it creates this hothouse effect by absorbing infrared radiation from the sun. And what that does is it inhibits the planet's natural cooling mechanism. So that's why they, you know, talk about it being, you know, a greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. Um, The other aspect of it is that the Earth is warmed up on average. And I'm saying on average because in parts of the globe, it's warmed up even more than this. In some places, it's 7 to 8 degrees. But we've warmed up on average nearly 2 degrees since the industrial revolution. And and that has happened since that's that famous hockey stick you know, where we see everything yep. sort of going along at kind of a, you know, low-level thing, and then suddenly you see this jump, you know, and that's that's been happening since the Industrial Revolution. And mm-hmm. scientists have been warning us this would happen for over a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the other piece of this is that, so is this due to just natural warming or natural variation? And the short answer on this is that, that the warming has just been, since the 1970s, the warming has just been too rapid and too widespread to be caused by natural climatic shifts, which usually occur over the span of several centuries. You know, we have sea ice retreating. We've got uh, tree ring data that show the temperatures are rising very quickly. And, um, you know, the the, uh, the uh, icebergs are melting. You know, we're having all of this stuff happen. You know, some sobering statistics that I pulled out. In the the last two decades of the 20th centuries were the hottest in 400 years and perhaps the warmest in several millennia. Mm -hmm. In 2012, uh, the Arctic sea ice shrank to its smallest summer minimum extent since satellite records began 34 years ago. In 2012, and this is just data that came out this past week, Mm -hmm. the United States and Argentina experienced their hottest years ever. do we have a, another couple minutes? Because I had Absolutely. another little thing I wanted yep. to talk about, but I, I know you might have to take a break. Absolutely. So, go right okay, ahead. Go ahead. Now, here's the thing that I find really worrisome, and people are not talking about this much at all, is what's happening to the oceans. The ocean has acidified by 30% in the past century, last century. The oceans are the world's carbon sink. You know, and they absorb the CO2 in the air. They absorb about 50 times more CO2 than the, uh, than the air does. And what happens is when CO2 mixes with H2O, it forms carbonic acid, which is fueling the acidity of the oceans, and that kills seafood species, coral reefs, and organisms at the foundation of the food chain. By 2050, if emissions continue at current rates, and we don't look like we're doing anything to stop it, Mm-hmm. The alkalinity of the ocean will be lower than at any time in the last 20 million years. And this is a change that is occurring a 100 times faster than at any time since Earth was formed. I mean, that to me is really frightening. 
Well, it is. And I think, you know, to explain this in kitchen table language, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution, we talk about that being a pivotal point, and a lot of people don't make the connection there. Essentially, what we started doing was taking carbon out of the ground that was buried for millions of years in the form of coal and oil and natural gas. And as we burned those things to boil water, uh, you know, to make electricity, as we burned them to make steel and, and all the things that fueled factories, you know, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution till now, um, that carbon was released into the atmosphere. Now, some people may say, well, when that oil and coal and natural gas used to be dinosaurs and, you know, plants and all the things that actually formed, you know, those pools of oil, coal, and gas, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a, a problem with that. But the problem that with that thinking is that when that carbon used to be above ground, <laughs> uh, millions of years ago, we had more trees, more wetlands, and, and things that would help the ocean uh, sequester that carbon. And right now, our carbon cycle, which is a natural cycle of the Earth, is out of balance because all of this carbon that was buried underground is now being brought up and that carbon's reintroduced to the Earth's atmosphere without the same level of carbon uh, absorption or sequestering capability that the Earth had all those millions of years ago. We've built over wetlands and we've cut down trees and deforested areas where you know we might have an opportunity to absorb more of that carbon that we're putting into the air. So, you know, all of these things, it, it makes perfect sense. And even, you know, an elementary school student can understand it when you you know when you talk about uh, why our carbon cycle is out of balance and why that is creating more carbon in the atmosphere and hence the greenhouse gas effect. I'm wondering, based on your research, Linda, all this increased CO2 in the air. What impact will that have on air pollution and and the human health impacts of that air pollution? Well, I think that that's really you know the stuff that I was looking at and. So we've got all this carbon dioxide in the air, and I, Jill, that was wonderful. <laughs> I to write that down because, you know, that really sort of takes it back down to the basics. And, you know, to sort of add to what you were talking about, um, these are, you know, these statistics always sort of, you know, boggle my mind, but we're dumping 31.6 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere a year. And it's hard to get your arms around what that means, but a gigaton is 1 billion tons, which is equal to about twice the mass of all 7 billion people on Earth. Twice. That's a lot. So that means that 31.6 gigatons is more than 60 times the aggregate weight of every single person on that planet. And we dump that into the air every single year. And as you pointed out, you know, the normal carbon cycle has become completely overwhelmed. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, the oceans are doing their best to be a carbon mm-hmm. sink. But, you know, the, the oceans are getting overwhelmed too. So, all right, so we've got all this carbon dioxide that's emitted from tailpipes and it's going in the air. This is collecting now over cities. We see this in Salt Lake City. You know, we see this in the uh, California Central Valley. They're creating what's called these CO2 domes that shroud the urban cores in toxic clouds of pollution. And, you know, there was a Stanford study on air quality in New York, Phoenix, and Baltimore that shows that, you know, they have all these, uh, you know, these uh, CO2 levels that are spiking in these very high levels. And they create this kind of toxic cloud of, of pollution that, that these domes act like pressure cookers exacerbating pollution's harmful effects, and it may, as right now, be responsible for up to a 1,000 
extra deaths across the country. And, you know, to sort of drill down on this, you know, two of the chief culprits behind asthma and allergies, uh, air pollution and smog, also intensify as temperatures rise. You have uh, ozone smog, which is a mixture of all these pollutants and particles in the air, and that's created when sunlight cooks more pollutants in the atmosphere. And, you know, when the temperature heats up, more ozone is produced, and more ozone in turb traps more heat, creating this, you know, vicious cycle and also exacerbating what we call the urban heat island effect. And the urban heat island effect is what happens in cities where cities usually are maybe 5 and sometimes even 10 degrees warmer than surrounding areas because of the asphalt and the, ro- and the roads and the buildings that absorb and then radiate heat. And mm-hmm. they don't, you know, absorb them the way uh, plants and trees and flowers do. So well, that's, that's one aspect of that. Well, and I think, um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, you know, they, they'll say, well, gosh, carbon dioxide isn't toxic. We breathe it out every time we, you know, take a breath out. But when there's so much of it, like you said, these CO2 domes, um, the impact of, again, a carbon cycle that's out of balance can exacerbate the particulate matter and the things that we call um, – air pollution such that there is a negative human health impact, even though, you know, it's just what we breathe out, carbon dioxide, but in egregious amounts, in in out-of-balance amounts in the atmosphere, it can have a really devastating impact on human health. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away, folks. We have much more with the author of Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. Linda Marsa will be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Music. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back, everybody. If you happen to just be tuning in, our guest today is Linda Marsa. She is the author of a brand new book that I'm kidding you not. I am wild about this book, and I don't get that excited about uh, you know every book I read. But believe me, her book makes climate change so real, so human, and and so interesting that I just I simply could not put it down. The book is called Fevered: Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. And if you want to check out her website, where you you can find her book and a lot of other uh, great articles that she's written. You can go to www.lindamarsa, that's M-A-R-S-A, dot com, lindamarsa.com. So check that out and check out her book, Fevered. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, even though it's about a topic that, you know, really is alarming, uh, she she writes in such a way that it's truly a human interest story and not just a, a litany of scientific facts, though there's plenty of those included as well. Linda, I'd like to talk about how climate change will impact the spread of infectious diseases. This is not just an issue uh, for the continent of Africa or faraway places that uh, that citizens of the United States don't need to worry about. This is something that will come right home to us, and I'd like for you to talk about that, if you would. Well, I thank you for the kind words, Jill, really. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I, I, that, actually, looking at you know the spread of infectious diseases is how I got started writing the book, because um, the book itself started as a magazine story that I did on you know, the, the spread of dengue fever, you know, here in the United States, and there was an outbreak in Texas. And, and, and this is kind of an exotic disease that had been sort of exiled to the tropics when we had these huge, uh, you know, DDT campaigns and getting rid of mosquitoes. And uh, what I discovered is that, you know, just looking at, say, mosquitoes now, that, um, you know, hotter weather, you know, extends the uh, disease transmission mosquitoes uh, of uh, disease transmission seeds of the mosquitoes because the breeding cycles shorten. So that means that you know the, the the mosquitoes can reproduce twice instead of once in a in a season. So you know, just do the math. Uh, heat also speeds up the incubation of the pathogens that are inside the mosquitoes, so they become infective faster, and there are a greater number of days that you can be infected. And then female mosquitoes who do the biting, um, they bite more frequently when the thermostat rises. And then hotter weather also amplifies the impact of hurricanes and storms, which cause changes in rainfall patterns and flooding, which in turn, you know, expands habitats hospitable to mosquitoes. And, you know, basically, you know, sort of the take-home message here is that ecosystems are changing now because the weather's hotter. So what that means is that there are newly warm areas where the mosquitoes can live. And we see this with the black-legged ticks that spread Lyme disease. You know, they've migrated from where the disease was first uh, identified in Connecticut, and now they're, you know, up in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just did a report on a a study of the Aedes albopictus mosquito. And um, this mosquito arrived here in the United States from Japan in Houston in the mid-80s, 
and and, and they now have seen it as far north as uh, Connecticut, and they fully expect that within the next you know twenty thirty years that it's going to be endemic in Maine. And this is because the habitats are newly warm, and these mosquitoes can survive. And the Aedes albopictus mosquito, you know, for example, can spread West Nile virus, it can spread dengue fever, it can spread yellow fever, three different types of encephalitis, and chugungaya, which is very unpronounceable, but it's a particularly nasty infection that causes this very painful uh, joint pain. And right now it's endemic in Southeast Asia. But, you know, they're fully expecting to see, you know, outbreaks of these kinds of diseases here. So uh, this is how we're, we're seeing, you know, more infectious diseases. And, you know, one of the things that I found extremely interesting is that, you know, we've sort of accepted the fact that West Nile virus is now entrenched and established here in the United States. But what I think that people don't realize is the reason why West Nile is here is because the temperatures are warmer and the mosquito that spreads West Nile is is now able to move to newly warm habitats. Uh, West Nile was first introduced into the United States in 1999. And, you know, I'm sure it's come here before. You know, West Nile is from Africa, from obviously mm-hmm. the West Nile district in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it sort of migrated to Israel, and there were, you know, sort of focal outbreaks in that area. But it, it really finally established a firm foothold here in the United States when we had these sort of record-breaking you know, uh, uh, rains and then, you know, high heat that allowed the mosquito populations to explode and spread the, spread the disease. Mm-hmm. And then in 2000, it spread across the United States when, we, again, we had this, you know, weather pattern where you had this high heat and heavy rains, and now it's endemic here in the United States. So that's just sort of one example of the kinds of, you know, infectious disease outbreaks that we're going to be seeing more and more of as the climate gets hotter. What is the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, doing about this? I mean, are they getting ready for this climate change-driven spread of infectious diseases? I mean, some of these things, some of these uh, diseases we don't have a lot of treatments for. I mean, we can comfort patients, but in terms of cures or vaccines, um, we're not there yet. So uh, what is the CDC doing in the face of this knowledge? Well, I, I think that's very good, a very good point. You know, just to sort of step back, and I will talk about the CDC, is that for most of these diseases, we don't have any kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the other scary part about this, you know, is that we think, oh, we'll just take an antibiotic, we'll be fine. Well, guess what? And um, something like Hanta, uh, uh, pulmonary virus syndrome, hantavirus pulmonary syndrome um, mm-hmm. it has a 30% fatality rate. And all you can do is get to the hospital and get pumped up with a lot of fluids and just everybody kind of hopes for the best. So mm-hmm. that's what's really scary about these diseases. We don't have any treatments and we don't have any vaccines. As far as the CDC goes, um, you know, to sort of step back again, one of the things that I was extremely gratified about when I sort of dug down, you know, drilled down on all of this is that, you know, maybe on a national level in Congress, they're still arguing over whether climate change is happening. You know, the people on the ground aren't arguing about it. They see what's happening and they're already doing things about it. You know, local governments, uh, water managers, and the CDC has really been in the forefront of working towards developing systems to help us adapt to climate change. And, and one of the things that the CDC has done and really done remarkably well is that they're, they're increasing and, and really deepening their penetration of their surveillance systems 
And that way, if there is an outbreak, they can spot it right away and they can take steps to curtail the spread of disease. And this is really sort of where there was a real failure when West Nile first arrived in the United States because they had no idea what it was. And because they had no idea what it was, it took them a while to respond. And if they had responded sooner with aerial campaigns of getting rid of mosquitoes, they might have saved lives. And that was really sort of a a real lesson for them. And they have really stepped up their surveillance throughout the country. And one of the other things that they've done is that they've set up a network with the uh, Mexican Secretariat of Health. And uh, there there are several um, sites, I think there's nine or ten sites along the border. There are surveillance networks along the border because a lot of these diseases are coming from uh, uh, South and Central America, and they're mi- obviously they're migrating northwards. And, and the CDC is now working very, very closely with the Mex- Mexican Secretary of Health to spot these diseases coming so that we can, if the outbreaks come, we can limit the extent of damage. Well, that's good to know. And in, in addition to what the CDC is doing, is there anything that everyday citizens can be doing about this? I mean, what uh, are we just at the mercy of our system, or is there something that we can be doing to protect ourselves from the spread of these infectious diseases? Well, I think, you know, the first step, obviously, is to be aware. You know, and I know that sounds very simplistic, but if if you know that you live in an area that's susceptible to these types of things, and that's the other thing is to get educated because maybe you weren't susceptible, maybe the, where you lived wasn't susceptible when you were growing up. Well, guess what? I mean, you know, I live in Los Angeles, and, you know, we're a really high desert here, and suddenly we're having these really humid summers that were like these summers that I grew up with in New York. It's Mm -hmm. really strange to me, but, you know, I, I have to recognize that the climate is changing. So I think that, you know, the first step is to really sort of get educated and find out, well, you know, maybe I am. Maybe, you know, we, we will be having mosquitoes here. Uh, maybe we will be having ticks. And being aware of that, you know, wearing, you know, obviously insect repellent, being careful when you go outdoors, being careful about ticks. Um, if you do come down with something, to, you know, go to the emergency room right away and don't just dismiss it as, you know, something that, you know, maybe is inconsequential so that you can get treatments for it. So these are, you know, steps that you could take. But I think being aware that there mm-hmm. is this problem is really the first step. So you can take, you know, prevention. And the CDC has a lot of really excellent information online that you can look up and find out, you know, or and also the State Departments of Public Health or your local um, public health department will have these alerts about what's going on. Absolutely. Well, we have got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much, much more with Linda Marsa. We're talking about her new book, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. During the break, if you want to keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, open a new tab in your web browser and check out her website. It's www.lindamarsa.com. Don't go away, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Linda Marsa. She is the author of a new book called Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. And I mentioned before the break, and if you're just tuning in, I want you to have this opportunity as well. You can check out her website at www.lindamarsa, that's M-A-R-S-A, dot com. You know, with climate change, um, we have been told to expect more extreme weather events. You know, Linda, you and I were talking about how funny that that euphemism is. It, it barely contains the catastrophic nature of what it's describing. But because the, the global temperature overall is getting warmer, and uh, for instance, like the Arctic Circle and other ice sheets and permafrost like the one in Siberia are beginning to melt. There's more moisture in the air and that more moisture in the air can cause bigger and stronger hurricanes, more tornadoes, flooding, etc. And that's the simplified version of why climate change is expected to cause more natural disasters. But you went into New Orleans and you got to see what Hurricane Katrina did to their public health system. And I want you to talk about that. And I want our listeners to think about that in the context of let's suppose we have more Katrinas, more frequent, more, uh, you know, more of these storms, what that could do to the public health care system, not just in one city, but over an entire region. So, Linda, talk to us about what you found in terms of the impact that Katrina had on their public health system in New Orleans. Well, I, it, it, first of all, I, I just wanted to say one thing. Um, I, you know, they haven't really linked up tornadoes with climate change and i you know i i i know that you know i want to be very careful about that you know it's just like you know hurricane sandy um it it seems to me that hurricane sandy was caused by climate change but we don't know that for sure so i you know i always want to be careful about that what we do know about hurricane sandy is that the storm surge 
which, you know, was a 14-foot storm surge that sort of, you know, swept over lower Manhattan and parts of the, uh, you know, Brooklyn and, and Queens, that was definitely caused by climate change. So I want to be, you know, really careful about that. But anyway, what happened in New Orleans I thought was extremely interesting because, you know, everybody knows there was this horrible thing that happened at Hurricane Katrina. But, you know, what happened in the aftermath? You know, uh, only three of 16 hospitals remained open, you know, in the months afterwards. You know, I interviewed doctors and, you know, forget about, you know, the nightmare that happened in the week or two weeks after, you know, Katrina. For months afterwards, as the doctor said, healthcare remained unacceptably cr- primitive with serious shortage of hospital beds, laboratory facility equipment, you know, um, they lost uh, up to a third of the medical school faculties, um, you know, 70% of doctors, uh, you know, left the area, you know, on and on and on and on. The ones who were there were practicing uh, medicine on card tables and they were using ice chests in storefronts to store medicine and vaccines and they were practicing in military tents. Uh, they they looked, uh, you know, the, their Congress looked, and they warned of this potentially catastrophic public health care crisis because the city's medical infrastructure was so precarious and stretched so thin that even a, a single bus crash or an influenza outbreak would, you know, uh, o- overwhelm the system. So this is what I saw. And, and, you know, doctors and the nurses and the health care professionals, I mean, these are extremely heroic and dedicated people who are really trying their hardest to, um, you know, make things better and make things work. But, you know, in in the year after Katrina, you saw a 25% increase in mortality rates, you know, of people who, you know, had chronic diseases that weren't being cared for properly. You know, and I could just go on and on and on and on. You know, all the uh, uh, records were destroyed. So, you know, you're in the middle of chemotherapy. They don't know what kind of uh, medication to give you because mm. all of this information was destroyed. You know, people who had chronic illnesses, you know, didn't have their medication with them and had no idea what kind of medication to to take. So, so this is what happened in in New Orleans afterwards. And and we'd like to think, well, it'll only happen in New Orleans. But you know, when you look at what happened after Hurricane uh, Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, and yes, the public health system responded much better, and you didn't have this complete devastation of the public health system. But you did have tens of thousands of people who are chronically ill, who are deprived of health care, who months later are living, uh, still sleeping on cots in these board and care and, you know, nursing facilities that are completely overloaded. You had uh, three hospitals that had to be evacuated in the middle of the storm that became flooded because the generators were in the basement. So I could sort of go on and on with this, but I think that you get the picture, that, you know, you people really couldn't get their health care. And then, you know, depression, you know, the depression of living in this this uh, environment was incredible, too. And one of the – a little factoid, you know, always these little factoids to me that are very, very striking – Within a year after Katrina, you had five doctors committing suicide. Mm. Five doctors. I mean, these are highly educated professionals who just couldn't take the stress of living mm. in this environment. So, so that's really sort of what happened. What has New Orleans done since that horrible, well, uh, horrible you, situation to disaster-proof their public health system? Well, this is sort of the good part you know, of the story, you know, which I sort of found, you know, in drilling down is that 
that so what happened is they were uh, sort of doing <laughs> they were doing you know healthcare on the fly and they had mm. set up these sort of storefront clinics uh in uh the very famous one was at this old abandoned Lord and Taylor department store they set up a storefront clinic there they were setting up uh storefront clinics in abandoned grocery stores and i think they started off with about 18 of these storefront clinics where you know people could go and get some kind of rudimentary medical care but what happened is that that this uh, storefront clinic operation evolved into this network of a hundred community based clinics, which ironically, after all this, have become sort of a model of resiliency because number one, rather than having a model where, you know, most of the public health system is centralized downtown at a public health hospital and, you know, for people without insurance they had to access through the emergency room and it was, you know, very expensive, very difficult. It's evolved into this model of community-based care where people can go into their community. There's much better continuity of care. They can, um, you know, go see doctors, you know, uh, without having to take the bus or wait a year for appointments. So the upshot is that they've developed a model of public health that really is a model of resiliency because what happens is if one, if one clinic gets flooded, or is out, the other clinics which work together as a network can take up the slack. That's mm-hmm. one thing that they've done. The other thing that they've done that's very important is that they're part of a pilot program by the federal government called the Beacon Exchange Program. And, you know, again, what I keep reiterating when I talk about it is that, you know, there's so many programs across the country that pilot programs that have been developed, and this is one of them to adapt to climate change that are now shovel-ready. I mean, we have, there's, million, there's hundreds of programs across the country that we can adopt on a national level that can really prepare us to smooth the transition to a greener, cleaner, healthier, better future, and this is one of them. The Beacon program is um, electronic uh, records, medical records are kept electronically, so people have their records, and they're kept off-site so in the event of a disaster, I mean, even at NYU, their uh, generators were flooded, and so they lost all their medical records, even the electronic ones. But here they can be accessed electronically off-site so that even if the hospitals are flooded, they still have their medical records. You know what I find so interesting, Linda, is that I think during the post-World War II era, the model for so many things was centralization, whether it was building big hospitals, building big power generators, and everything came to a hub and then was distributed. Big grocery stores, supermarkets, all of this was the trend. And now we're beginning to see that the way things were you know, decades ago, more decentralized, more local, whether it's for uh, distributed power generation, uh, whether it's for, you know, distributed health care, local farmers markets, this new trend seems to be kind of vintage. I mean, that's the same way that my grandparents and great grandparents used to do everything. And, you know, in on the one hand, uh, it's preparing us for climate change. But on the other hand, it's probably going to build 
resilient communities. I mean, we talk about in many aspects of life this kind of loss of community and loss of civic engagement. But the more local some of these systems become and the less centralized they become, the more citizen involvement there will be and, and possibly better, even better customer service. Um, and I just think that's so interesting. I don't know if you've, if you've thought about that much, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that trend. Well, I, I completely agree with everything you said because, you know, in my last chapter, I talk about sustainable cities. And this is exactly, you know, what I talk about in there. And I, I've, you know, I've come to the same conclusions that you have is that, that we need to, you know, some of the things we've done are wonderful, clearly, but we need to move past. We've created this car-centric culture that has made us miserable, lonely, and fat. I mean, one of the things that I wrote about, you know, in the final chapter on sustainable cities is, you know, I was looking at New York. I, You know, I live in L.A., and I go to New York a couple times a year, and I have this friend who lives in the West Village who I always stay with, and I know the people in her building better than I know my neighbors. And that kind of community that you have in New York, and you have a very engaged citizenry in New York that, that really pushes, you know, the civic uh, government to do things. And one of the things, just to take one small example, you know, people ask me, well, what can we do? Well, we've got to cut down on our carbon emissions. And one of the ways that we can cut down on our carbon emissions is starting to eat locally. Our food travels an average of 1,500 miles. I mean, do the math. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't be eating food that travels that far, and I'm just as bad as anybody else. You know, I love having those strawberries in the wintertime, but those strawberries that come in the wintertime are coming from Chile. I mean, this is insane. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we're looking at, you know, local farmers markets, you know, starting to have, you know, local food sources, things like that, and it creates more of a sense of community, which I think is a, a better way to live. Well, and I think that it will also um, create the infrastructure that's really going to be needed if we do have some severe impacts from climate change, as, as many scientists are telling us that we will. It's really going to be the banding together of human beings in communities um, to help each other uh, more than you know anything the state or federal governments can do, although there is plenty they can do. But it's really going to be that sense of community and human-to-human contact that will help us to thrive and to continue to uh, to do well, even under extreme weather conditions. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Linda Marsa, author of the book Fevered, How a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? 
Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvana alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could all join us because I think that Linda Marsa, author of the new book, Fevered, Why a Hotter Planet Will Hurt Our Health and How We Can Save Ourselves, I think she's giving us um, a, a window into something that is so important, and it's the human health impact that climate change is expected to have and in some places is already having. And it's not something that's going to happen far away in third world countries. It's something that will impact us here right in the U.S. And Linda, you traveled to Australia, which is also a very modern, very 21st century place, much like the United States. And I would love for you to talk to us about some of the things that they are doing to address climate change because they they really are on the leading edge of some of these impacts that we've been talking about. I'd love for you to share that with us. Well, I, I, several things. Um, the first thing, and you mentioned this in the top of the hour, is uh, what's going on in Perth. And there are sections of the country in Australia, and I don't want to get into all the background science on this, that really are going to absolutely have no water. So they've become um, world leaders in water management. And so that's one aspect is, is the kind of things they're doing. They, they do have desalination, which I have kind of mixed feelings about. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure the technology is really there yet, but they have a whole suite of strategies for conserving water. And one of the things that they did that I thought was just incredible, and I actually spent time with the guy who did this, is that they have computerized and they know where every drop of water in the country is. I mean, it's just mind-boggling <laughs> to me, the amount of work that it took. The inventory, it like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, five years. But that way, when you know how much you have, you can manage it. So that's, that's sort of the first thing that they're doing. Um, a, another thing that they're doing um, that I found very important is that they're creating, you know, different types of farming uh, 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 techniques. You know, they're doing uh, no-till farming so that you don't really disturb the soil and it uses less water and it, it sort of, um, you know, keeps the soil moist. So they're, they're pioneering and farming techniques. Um, they're also, I, I found this extremely interesting. I know there's different, you know, scientific groups around the world that are looking into this, but the one that I found was the most advanced was there was a group down in Australia, and I've written a couple articles about this, that have figured out a way to keep mosquitoes from transmitting diseases, which I, I, it's better than, you know, coming up with a better insecticide. And, you know, this way, you know, it would, you know, stop the spread of infectious diseases. So 
these are all, you know, different methods that are really being pioneered, you know, in Australia to figure out ways. And, you know, they're also looking about, you know, sort of moving away from the shore because, you know, you can't re- keep rebuilding in place. You know, what's the definition of insanity? You know, doing the same thing <laughs> over and over, hoping for a better exactly. result. You know, we can't, I mean, when I look at, you know, this fight about rebuilding, you know, the Jersey Shore, I'm thinking, this is insane. This place is going to be underwater in 50 years. Why are we rebuilding there? And and that's the stuff that they're looking uh, into is, is creating, you know, better ways of uh, building buildings so that they can withstand, you know, harsher weather and, you know, rising sea level. Um, just better ways of fighting fires because the fires are getting fiercer and more intense and more ferocious and covering more land areas. So there was, they're really up against it and their very survival is at stake and they know it and they're trying to do things to combat it. You know, your book opened with a graphic description of what happened in the Dust Bowl in the United States back in the Depression era. Era, and I've seen it in history textbooks. You know, my whole life, and uh, you know, it's, it's the sad faces, and they're, everybody's hungry and all dusty. But the way that you described what was going on there with the the drought and the dust storms was. Um, well, it was frightening, but it was also very well written. I mean, it, it, it oh, read you. like a thriller novel. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, I, I you know, you that... always want people to get interested, so you open up with an interesting story that will draw people in. But the reason that I picked writing about the Dust Bowls is that uh, because of something, some research that I came across that just totally, you know, sort of hit me over the head, not blindsided me so much, but... You know, we had talked earlier, you know, everybody's going, well, so, you know, so the temperature's heating up a degree or two. What's the big deal? You know, I mean, you know, temperature varies 10, 15 degrees. You know, it's 30 degrees in the winter. It's 90 degrees in the summer. Who cares? But, you know, the the ecosystems and, you know, our climate system, they're very delicately calibrated, and we don't realize how delicately calibrated. And what I found out, and this was, you know, research that was done by NASA scientists, and they were looking at ocean temperatures over the past hundred years, and what they discovered, and this is what I found extremely chilling, no pun intended, <laughs> is that the, that the, the drought that caused the dust bowls, was caused by just a difference in one degree change in the surface temperatures of the ocean. And what happened was that the jet stream that normally, you know, dumps a lot of water over the Midwest and the Great Plains area was uh, changed and it didn't bring the water there. And it caused this eight or nine year drought that triggered the dust bowls. And, you know, the other piece of this is that, you know, the, a millennium ago, you know, the, the the Midwest and those areas were desert, and the predictions are that the Midwest and those areas are going to tip into desert once again as the temperature heats up. Well, and of course, most of us realize that a good deal of not just the food for the United States is grown in the Midwest, but food that feeds the rest of the world. Um, much of the, the corn products and wheat products that are grown in the Midwest and the Plains states um, – are exported overseas. So the ripple effect for human hunger and suffering is far beyond our own borders. And and that 
actually, you know, back when the Arab Spring was uh, beginning and in full swing, there were a lot of people who said that because of the wheat crop devastation in Russia, that contributed to the unrest in Egypt because Egypt imports almost all of its wheat from, or at that time did, from Russia. And when that crop, because of droughts uh, in, in Russia a couple of years ago, uh, was so poor that the Russians said they were not going to export their wheat, um, a lot of people said, oh boy, we're in trouble because people are going to be hungry and when people are hungry, there'll be unrest. And so uh, you know, if, if the same thing begins happening where the U.S. can scarcely feed itself and, and diminishes its food exports, we could be looking at a level of human suffering that, you know, it's the ripple effect of climate change and the human impact that it's hard to get your head around, you know? Well, I, I completely agree, Jill. And there's a whole section in the book that I go into just this on, uh, you know, what is going to be the effect of drought because, you know, there's, as you know, we there, we have certain changes that are built into the system because of all the carbon that we've already dumped, and uh, they're predicting that you know millions of people, uh, something like thirty percent within the next twenty years, are going to be under extreme food deprivation because mm-hmm. of these droughts. What are they going to do? They're going to be migrating. There's going to be migraines, mass migrations. Mm-hmm. Um, they're predicting, you know, they, you know, the, the, it was research that was done at UC Berkeley that looks at, you know, for every degree increase in temperature, you know, creating more droughts, you see a four to five percent increase in conflicts and wars. And, you know, we're looking at mortality rates just you know, it's a spillover from conflicts of four to five million people. So, yeah, this is definitely going to happen. And, you know, it increased violence. You know, people are hungry. They get angry. Hello. You know, I don't don't blame them. So I I agree with you. We're looking at more and more of this. Well, and I think that, you know, this is why it's so important for people to read books like yours because, you know, it's not just – climate change is not just something that, um, you know, public policy alone can fix. It's not something that is going to happen far away. It's something that's going to impact all of us. And I think that um, when you look at things like, you know, an increase in extreme weather conditions, an increased spread of of – infectious diseases, drought, um, and in some places, floods due to rising sea levels. I mean, there's just such a myriad of issues that climate change will be bringing to the forefront that we really do need to think it through, be prepared, and at the local level, think about how climate change could impact our own neighborhood, our own city, our own county and state, and start doing some things and get engaged as citizens to be smart about preparing for what is uh, what is around the bend and to make sure that our children are, are also prepared and that we've prepared the future for them so that they inherit an infrastructure um, that will support a, a thriving, uh, good life for them even under these climate change circumstances. Linda, I can't thank you enough for being on Go Green Radio. Folks, I hope you'll get out on her website, lindamarsa.com, and check out her book, Fevered. It's a great read. You will be so interested. You'll be riveted. Um, you'll not be able to put it down. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us to our listeners. We're going to be here same time, same place next week. So until then, have a wonderful week, everybody, and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.